Welcome to Six Four, a podcast that tells stories of successes, failures, and learnings for Kiwi tech organizations. I'm your host, Bradley Scott, and each episode I invite co-hosts and guests to tell a story of an important part of a Kiwi tech organization's journey. In 2014, Xero was experiencing exponential customer growth, but they were about to hit a wall. Unless they did something drastic and soon, they would be unable to continue to scale their platform to handle new customers. In our first episode, we talked about how Xero reached the realization that they needed to move to public cloud and why they ended up selecting AWS. In this episode, we talk about the realities of that migration, what went wrong, and what needed to happen to pull the project back onto the tracks. This V4 environment, we'd only just just released in the beginning of 2013, and by June 2013, we were already looking at what next based on the storage alone, but then um, all these other issues. But there there was always these things where we were trying to, to patch things up so that the product team could keep on running and doing their wall of innovation while we did things in the back room um, around the platform. It was reasonably clear that we weren't going to get any development time to support us because we'd sort it out. Um, we'd add an index or something um, and, and it would work. But actually, um, as, as Hannah found out, when she was given the small list of development changes, um, there was quite a lot of rework that needed to be done to make it work on AWS because on, on AWS, we couldn't, it wasn't a case of moving to something. Well, obviously, AWS is massive, but actually, we had to to reduce our footprint um, into bite-sized chunks so it could run on AWS. Even though Rackspace was about to break, we had to make the application smaller. We first did a proof of concept on Amazon. We had incredibly smart guy come across from from Amazon Sydney, and we put him in a room with one of our um, engineers and made the thing work on Amazon, and it proved exactly all the kind of limiting parts of the design choices we'd made on the platform team for many time because of the slowness of, of delivery here when you're working with, with you know, an outsource provider, but like Rackspace. So instead of, you know, sensible deployment units like, you know, an app per server and, and network load balancing and all that other stuff that makes things kind of easy and discreet, we, you know, this massive stack. So every part of Zero might've had 20 different background services that were needed and they all sat on a single app server and multiple copies of that app server. So breaking that all apart had to happen on Amazon because of the way load balancing works. And um, there was an awful lot of things we knew we needed to change. Like we had files that existed temporarily in file systems um, before the next unit of work happened on them. We had this massive DFS or a whole lot of permanently stored objects were stored. And, um, and that was crazy because one of the first uh, systems that ever use that store put everything in the same directory so like you couldn't <laughs> list a directory store or there was a whole lot of stuff that was just plain at uh, point in time and and you know that that's that is what it is so actually thinking about moving to amazon became pretty clear that in the first phase of thinking that there were going to need to be these five golden rules but i mean this was the interesting thing about coming along in august you know what you know nine or so months into design and, th- and there was an infrastructure design you'd um, you know, Paul, you were alluding, Paul and Martin, you were both alluding to what we eventually called the cell design, right, which is the concept that we needed to reduce the given footprint of a certain number of customers so that they could fit into Amazon. Uh, and then we just sort of replicate that and put these customers over there and these customers there and so on and so forth. Um, 
but you know, and I and I say this with with all love because nobody did it intentionally. But what was really clear when I came along in August was everybody was doing the best that they could within the limits of what they knew about the systems. And this was a reflection on the organization structure of Zero at the time. Platform and engineering did not meet. Right, neither the twain shall cross a path and and talk and. And so what became very obvious is these assumptions about, oh, we can just do this. We can just split this thing. We can have these things on two servers. And of course, you know, the, the engineers uh, would sort of say, well, no, you can't do that. Well, there's no real reason that anybody in the platform team should have known that and vice versa. There's no reason that, you know, the engineers would have known to say something. So it, it was it was the great, totally predictable, absolutely every company has gone through it. Uh, evolution of pointing out, hey, there's some failures in your org structure, which are now meaning that your technical design doesn't meet reality, and and that was probably the the key crux of yeah, what you're talking about. We came up with these rules. We we had to figure out how, you know, oh boy, this 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 infrastructure design, the apps really don't fit it, and and not only do they not fit it, the amount of work required to make them fit it is huge, and it's not three months, and um how do we do this with a limited number of people? And we still had the resourcing challenges that you referred to, you know, for anything, just everybody was in feature factory mode, right? And so how do you whittle down the knowledge of all these important things about an entirely new infrastructure to a bunch of engineers that until now have never been asked to care about how the application is deployed? And so that's how we came up with you know the golden rules uh they were actually way more than five sadly it kept evolving but the idea was if you if your application adheres to all of these rules then in theory you don't need to know why or how or how to implement it but if you if you follow these rules thou shalt work in in you know the the aws design so one of the things uh that i vaguely recall is i guess where what i don't have a better term of the the wobbly middle and that there was a point in time that I recall there was a realization that the progress being made towards being able to migrate workloads was slower than the point at which the sand would become like catastrophically like difficult to run workloads on. And there, there was quite a few changes or shakeups or, or retrospectives to try to figure out, okay, well, what do we have to change now? given what we know about the scope and the complexity of this to get it back on track. Uh, for the three of you that were kind of closer to the rubber meeting the road on that, what did that conversation look like? What were the the, the learnings and what, what was done to, to adjust? Or, or is my recollection nowhere near kind of how it actually... It's probably way too simple, but it's about right. I mean, I think there was a number of problems that we had as a team. We did not have enough resources to take on what we were doing. And we were kind of organized in a way that reflected how we were working previously. So we had people who were trying to do one day a week something on the SQL Server build and then on other things and other things. And we hadn't figured out that we needed to reorganize into essentially platform-style engineering teams where they were building a service that would be consumed and used by zero you know, platform teams or, or product teams. And that was the kind of the, the break fix we brought in. Ben very recently had, had come in uh, as one of my architects on this. And there was need for this complete reorganization to, to, to restructure for what a post-operating model like. I remember sitting down with someone at 
um, about a couple of months before this all happened and talking about sort of, you know, this this post V5 state still really wasn't thought about and it was really worrying me. And, and they were like, well, we'll just teach all the people in the platform teams V5. And I just that that struck me at the time. Like, it's really not going to work like that, right? That's that's not an operating model we can exit with at all. It's it's worth it's worth clarifying. Sorry, Paul. Just just for context, the way that you were operating at the moment is there was a group of operations engineers working on V five, and a group of operations engineers holding the fort on V four, and and again, neither the twain shall meet, right? <laughs> Yeah, well, yeah, that's that's loosely true. We look the simple fact is we just didn't have enough people. So, um, you know, we, there was a bit of reorganization. We had for a number of years a a platform engineering team in Denver. Um, some really great SQL people that Martin had recruited over there. They they formed a, a SQL as a service team, uh, and um, it was. I look back at it now, I think it was absolutely the right thing to do. There were some real clear product teams formed, and PAS they were called at the time, right? And there was a kind of an identity, a network team. They were focused around managing IAM identity and um, how our networks would all, or how VPCs would connect through to each other and our security layer at the top. There was a security team and there was kind of a, you know, SQL as a service team I've already mentioned. Uh, there was the, you know, application service as a service team, whatever you want to call that thing. Um, and that actually started to make some real sense. We get that built. And then the really big thing happens for me, which was obvious it was going to happen, was other product teams like, hey, we need to build this thing. We, we, we can't have this kind of central two-account approach that you're proposing right now, like a dev test prod and a identity account. Product teams are going to need their own accounts. And that in itself was something that we clearly had anticipated and we thought we had time to, to just deal with later. And... That emerged as a real, you know, generalized business problem that we needed to solve for. So we were having to try to engineer all these different products, but think about this rapidly evolving product model because other teams wanted to get to the platform early. And I think like engineering, I can't remember what they were called. There was a particular team right, that had built some of the routing and other other functions. They wanted to, you know, run their own stuff in their own accounts. Great, um, but we had no model for figuring out what that would look like. This might have even been 2015 by this stage. By that stage, I'd moved up to Auckland across the practice products. And I, I think that was one of the the friction points for this realization is the workflow max work papers and tax products had a different pattern that some of the design constructs weren't going to fit very well in. And, and at one point, I think the decision was just jettison you guys and let you kind of come up with your own model because the priority needed to be on the core workloads and you guys will just figure it out uh the the other interesting thing that was happening at the same time which was just so hard to deal with is, is we were we the company were requiring other companies so we're trying to we're trying to lift and shift the existing workload and customers without outages ideally right um you've got and and we had been acquiring things like the products you mentioned, Bradley, but also I remember that year we we acquired um, at least one company. And I remember having to talk to the CTO about, hey, welcome to Zero. By the way, we're doing this massive infrastructure move and you need to change all of your applications. And they already had a different hosting situation. They weren't even on Rackspace. Like it was, it was, you were trying to hold so many strings. And I think 
I just want to call out how this is not criticizing decisions. It's just the reality of any company that's evolving so quickly. We, it, we really were trying to change out the engine while the airplanes in the, in the sky kind of thing. And we were trying to keep delivering features, keep delivering new things, um, keep evolving while also doing this massive thing underneath. And that was one of the biggest things that caused that wobbly middle, I think. We saw, uh, yeah. I mean, I think, look, the FedEx project, I'm sure most people have read. And, you know, it's very much a recollection of what happened as we were maxing out too many people with too many sort of single constraints in a, in a system to truly work effectively. It was it was kind of that point point in June 2015 where we decentralized the the AWS stuff and that was that was the the most um, freeing part of it. The unfortunate piece was is that um, I think a few of us in the core team trying to migrate things had grown a beard and so because uh, we it was getting quite long. And I think I think Hannah, I think Hannah, you 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 grew your uh, your uh, pony a bit longer. Yeah, the gal the gals the gals stuck with you and said we'd just grow it, and not get a haircut. So it was it was getting pretty dire towards the end, to be honest. Most of us most most of us were were planning on having the whole thing done in June 2015, um, and then um, actually there was a a number of sort of big meetings going on to say actually this isn't working. We need to rejig the whole thing and and decentralize it basically huge amount was de-scoped so and that, that took all sorts of shapes so we talked about golden rules before there were all sorts of golden rules that got cut out of it um we reduced scope like nobody's business in terms of the ideal software architecture to match this new infrastructure architecture um there was a massive reshuffle of of sort of people in the organization at least from a, a software engineering point of view um i suddenly got a whole bunch more people um and at the same time because we'd realized how many applications needed to be modified i think there was a realization um above me and us that we actually needed more people on the product side to be making changes because we just weren't going to make it and so that was when we started to roll out um it being a course of work across the organization but the problem was is we had very little time and, you know, Bradley, as you said, people hadn't really been briefed or brought into this. So they had roadmaps and they had things they wanted to deliver and all the rest of it. And suddenly we were having great conversations with GMs of products saying, oh, yeah, by the way, that great feature you wanted to deliver next month. Yeah, we need you to push that because we need you to do this urgent work for V5. And there was no context for the engineers. They hadn't had any training about what it was they were doing. Um, there was a whole aspect there of trying to coordinate across five offices and about 40 products I think at that point the thing that was cut that I think had some really interesting flow-on effects afterwards uh, was pretty much most of the pre-production environment stuff um, that was that was the easiest thing to cull and of course because you know the idea is is when you're building a new thing you build the test version first and then maybe the pre-prod version and then the prod version and you do that in that order. So if you cut off the first two, you can just jump straight to prod, right? And, and it was always this, oh, we'll bring the test environments up later. And that actually never truly got resolved. And, and that really created quite an interesting level of technical debt moving forward. Um, absolutely, some test environments were made. That's not to say we never had test environments, but it, it, it never got truly solved. And so we had this production environment that for a long time really didn't quite get reflected in test environments, which then always had a little bit of friction around it. And so that was the thing I, I regret us cutting the most. We we did need a pre-prod environment. So we cut it down from having 
test environments for everyone down to one. One one sort of you can test your app vaguely works here. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Bearing in mind, Zero was this massive ecosystem of applications, right? That had oh, it was various huge, cross dependencies right? on each other. Yeah, and and, and nothing, and a lot of yeah. that, very understandably, we didn't necessarily have like a really advanced enterprise architecture document, you know, document that showed all the dependencies, right? Because we never had to, and people had niche knowledge of niche areas, um, and and that's again not a criticism; it's just a fact of where the business was at at that time. But you know, when you have one test environment. Um, uh, you know the, the 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 those those sort of lack of communication problems kept happening. So that test environment, for example, the first time it was built, um, didn't work. And I don't mean in terms of didn't work from an infrastructure point of view. I mean it didn't match anything the the product engineers had been told would be what they were building to. And so there was this sort of again this, this these two cogs not quite meshing together quite right. And so the interesting thing for me is we we cut scope. We identify these problems. But some of the themes of the organizational structure impacting how this project executed kind of continued for a while. And that's, you know, as, you said, as Paul said, Conway's law, right? Absolutely. Obviously, progress was made and the organization got closer and closer to the process of cutting over workloads, which, which happened over a period of months. I also recall closer to that time, it was getting very, very expensive because of some duplicative costs. There was a very nervous Duncan for, I think, at least one month where he had millions of dollars more on his expenses line than, than what he ought to. How relevant did those just hard commercial imperatives become as to how the rollout actually ended up occurring? Oh, I think they were real, right? Um, there was a particular cost target per organization. Uh, and um, we had sort of been meeting that uh, um, in, in Rackspace land, and we had a, a target cost of the organization that we were you know, targeting to get to Amazon to reduce that cost. Uh, and um, I remember Mark coming to me one day and, and saying something along the lines, Paul, do you know how much our Amazon bill is? And I was like, oh, no. <laughs> and uh, Ben and I wrote this absolutely massive spreadsheet to try and understand it all and try and figure it out and try and relate it to our overall cost. And, and we've had... If only Corey of... Quinn was selling his services back... Oh, wow, well, I know, you know. We had... I, I, I can't remember exactly how much, but I remember the first cleanup we did of, of stuff that was just... It was, you know, kind of embarrassing, really. I, I think the commercial imperatives were that, you know, we were, we were rolling over Rackspace month to month and there was a question of how long... Because um, organizations, sorry, we're probably worth talking about how org was migrated. So we effectively, my recollection, and, and Hannah Martin could correct me if I'm wrong, is that um, we first created new orgs exclusively in Amazon before we migrated any orgs to Amazon. And so we were kind of running with two pots of, of full money um, at, at the same time. And then there was this question about if we migrate an organization, great. Um, we can do that organization by organization. Great. But how long do we leave the old data sitting there? And actually, you can't really decommission the cost of your SAN until you've got every byte of data off it. So there was this really long run, the commercial imperative there. And then you can't decommission the network until you've got rid of the SAN. And you can't decommission the firewalls or the load balancing and rack space until you got... So it was this really long tail. And I, one of the big outages that was caused during the uh, V5 migration uh, to Amazon was... Um, from a memory, we had a VPN stretched across 
between Amazon and um, Direct Connect and, and Rackspace and someone killed uh, a VM that was running on the Rackspace side that was tunneling all that traffic. And we had this outage and was scratching the heads for, for several hours until someone went, oh, no, we decommissioned something. Well, no, it was quite clear what that was, but that was unfortunately all that traffic. And, and because the routing service, I think at that point, was still in Rackspace, We'd, we'd broken half our orgs, all the new orgs maybe it was. Um, so that was, yeah, that that was the kind of commercial problems, right? We were spending a shitload of money on Amazon. Like that would explain all the fancy dinners they kept taking us out to at the time. And we needed to get that under control and a plan for how we'd retain control. Mind-blowing how much money Zero was spending on Amazon in the first few months. So Hannah, you're probably, of all the people on this call, the one that saw the the long tail of benefits realization there was obviously and you you need this you need to tell the story about what will come at the other side of these big endeavors right to to get people excited and compelled to to go and and make those efforts how much of that value got realized and how long did it take and what types of subsequent investments were required if any to to kind of unlock some of the promise look did did we get the benefits absolutely um, you know, the, the company that I left somewhat recently is is night and day compared to the company that we were dealing with in 2014 with regards to infrastructure and getting changes out and stuff. Um, you're talking about a very modern DevOps in the true sense of the meaning, um, you know, company and the average team knows much more about how the application runs in production. They are much more in control of what they're shipping. They're if they want to, they can optimize to ship every three seconds. You know, there's the, the decentralization that we talked about right at the beginning has happened. Absolutely. Um, the, the things, the, the, the really interesting, well, things that I think are interesting anyway that's happened is, um, you know, it's the inverse Conway's law of these technical shifts happen and the organization had to change to reflect it. And so what you saw was, and it took many years, but you saw the organizational structure really evolve multiple times. And every time I think a big factor of it was, hey, these teams wanted to be more independent and there was now nothing technically stopping them from being independent. So they would exert that independence and then that would affect the organization structure of, actually, we don't need to be tied to this other area of the business anymore. Um, so generally, you know, your average team has um, AWS expertise in it. There's definitely still a platform team. But, you know, the ideas that Paul uh, talked about in terms of having platform as a service, that stuck around, that held. Yes, it evolved, absolutely, based on what the internal customers needed. But that idea was solid. It was um, internal teams who are specialists in very particular aspects of AWS that are kind of overcomplicated and engineers shouldn't really need to give a toss about. Um, and so they provide internal products to host your solutions or maybe just provide a light wrapper over AWS. And so that that will keep evolving, but they definitely, you know, as of, as of my last interaction, they were definitely, that was definitely the right path. In our next episode, like many of our finales, we will talk lessons learned and patterns of success and advice that can be applied to similar undertakings. Thanks to our guests, Hannah, Martin and Paul, and see you all next episode. 
This has been 6.4, a podcast that tells stories of successes, failures, and learnings for Kiwi tech organizations. If you enjoyed this episode, let us know, and share it with someone else who you think would enjoy it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please get in contact to suggest them. Until next episode, goodbye.